Welcome to the Reader House Author Roundtable, where authors from all walks of life come together to discuss the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of publishing their books. I'm Alice Stockton-Rossini. Join us here every Saturday night at 8 o'clock or listen to our podcast anytime on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Podserve, just to name a few. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where independent new authors come first. T.W. Chip Small lives on the dry side of the Cascades in Washington State, and he has spent a lifetime serving up justice, giving him enough human interest stories to tell for a lifetime. His book, Stark Justice, is based on one of them, about a young jockey whose dreams are dashed. But you know what, Chip, let's start with your story. Uh, We moved out to Seattle in 75, went to three years of law school there, and then the first year we lived there, we had 89 days in a row without seeing the sun. Worse yet, without seeing a cloud. It was just overcast. So while I was in law school, we, we were looking for places on the dry side. And fortunately, I got a, a job at the best firm in our, our community and, and took off from there. We've been here since 78. And I was a trial lawyer for them for 13 years in a superior court uh, judge for about almost 27 years. How did you like that? Loved it. I loved every minute of it. It, it just made me use everything I ever learned throughout my life. What made you write Stark Justice? You know, it was back when I was a trial lawyer. I had uh, I had been I'd been doing a lot of insurance defense cases and personal injury cases and malpractice and all that. And then gradually that didn't pay so much, so I switched over to. Uh, personal injury work as a plaintiff's attorney. And the biggest case I had, uh, as far as damages go, uh, was representing Elmer Wright. Uh, he was my client. Uh, it was a huge case, and it was a skinny liability, uh, big damage case. I uh, worked on it for two and a half years, and uh, unfortunately for me, because I'm a trial lawyer, we ended up settling the case right before the trial was going to start. And so I didn't have to work that weekend. It's a three-day weekend and woke up uh, Saturday morning wide awake at 6 a.m., even though I was trying to uh, sleep in, saying, I got to write a book about this. Uh, Elmer's life is fascinating, and I, I, I got to write a novel about this. And, and then I started, no, you don't know how to write a novel. What are you talking about? I said, no, you're a lawyer. You know how to write. You're, that's what you do for a lawyer. No, I write briefs. I write letters. I don't contracts. I don't write novels. You know, No, you can do this. I finally gave up arguing and went upstairs and, and started reading the first book on my nightstand, The Chancellor Manuscript by Robert Ludlum. And it was a story about a guy, similar situation, worked two and a half years on his PhD dissertation and got thwarted uh, by the bad guys and, and they didn't approve his dissertation, but the Princeton University uh, called him in. Uh, he was one of the bad guys to tell him, oh, it's a shame they didn't let you publish your dissertation, but you should go ahead and do it anyway and make it a novel. And so I threw the book up at the ceiling and said, okay, I'll do it. And I, I outlined 16 chapters that day. Uh, this is way back when I was a lawyer and then got cold feet and subscribed to Writer's Digest for a year. Everything I read in Writer's Digest, I already had in my outline. And then there's an article by John Grisham uh, where he said he outlined a critical mass. And that struck a chord with me, so I pulled my outline back out, outlined 28 chapters in super detail, uh, wrote the first chapter and a half, and got appointed to the bench. 
whereupon it sat on a shelf. <laughs> and it took me about 10 years to learn how to be a judge, and I could have finished it then, but I thought, eh, I, th- I know God wants me to write this, and if I write it now, maybe it'll off me. So I delayed, and then I retired, and it was like, okay, I got to write it. So I told the wife in December of 2020, I'm going to write it. And she said, yeah, right. You know, I mean, she's been hearing this forever. But I gave the first chapter and a half to my son-in-law. I, I wanted a one-word reaction from him. He read it and said, intense. I knew I did it wrong. So I took a work, a writer's workshop in January of 2021. And it, it had a lot to do with flashbacks. And they didn't like flashbacks too much. They said, don't use them too many, too often. Well, my entire 28 chapters was one flashback after another. And it would, would, it would have been awful. So I went to Office Depot, bought a three-ring binder, bought um, Story Engineering by Larry Nichols, read that, found out how all works of fiction are identical, like a house has a foundation, walls, and a roof. Fiction has an exciting incident, first major plot point, second major plot point, rules on when you can introduce new facts before the end of the book, et cetera, et cetera. So I reorganized my 28 chapters with sticky notes in this binder and put it in the correct order. It took me two days, and I realized I was only six scenes short of a 90,000-word novel. Oh. And I, well, heck, I can, I can make those up as I write it. So I just started writing in February of 2021, and by December, I was... I uh, had 88,000 words. I thought, man, I'm going to finish this. So I looked up my former client uh, who inspired the whole book, and there's a phone number. Great. So in January, I finished it, and uh, I called the number. It was disconnected. I went, darn. But I paid $4.99 for an internet search, found the name of a woman in her 30s that had a different last name as my client, but this is a weird spelling of her first name. And I remembered that Elmer had a two-year-old daughter when I represented him that had that same name. So I thought that's got to be her. So I called and told her why I was calling and she nearly dropped the phone. Her dad was in, in bad health. He was elderly by that time. And, and so she had moved him in to her place. That's why the phone was disconnected. And he had just told her a week or two earlier that he had a lawyer once that was going to write a book about him. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And so we, we ended up, I printed the manuscript on my printer at home, bound it up. We met for uh, dinner at a, at a local restaurant because he was coming back up to our area uh, for health care. And it, we were at Denny's, and they didn't need electricity that night. It's, his daughter's beaming that this retired judge wrote a book about her dad. He's beaming, I told you so, I told you so. And I'm beaming that I got it to him before he passed away. <laughs> <gasps> That's amazing. That sounds like it was destiny. Oh, absolutely. Elmer was a jockey, and he was a really, really good jockey. But because he lied about his age when he was 15, he beat one of the best jockeys in the world in his very first race, but they found out that he wasn't old enough, so he was disqualified and banned from being a thoroughbred jockey. So he went through a period of his life doing other things, uh, and eventually, enough time had passed, he had an agent, and he was on the verge of going back into thoroughbred horse racing and destined to be one of the best in the world. And then he gets in this car wreck. (gasps) <gasps> with uh, uh, the daughter of a wealthy wheat rancher, uh, and it just decimates him. It's severe injuries, but it's a centerline case. So he might get lots of money, and then again, he might not get anything. And so you learn about 
uh, how, it's basically an inside view of both sides, both the defense attorney and the plaintiff's attorney and the woman that hit Elmer. That doesn't have the greatest reputation uh, after my readers have read about her, but uh, it's a character-driven novel. I really go in depth on a lot of the different characters. And, and because I'm a judge, uh, by, the, by the time I wrote it, I'm glad I waited to write it because I was able to in all kinds of social issues, drug addiction, domestic violence, you name it, it's in there. So it's a really fun read. One of my friends that said it's a book you have to savor because there's so much packed into it. I'm really proud of it. I'm, I'm, a lot of people look at me and go, you know, Judge, I didn't expect much because it was your first novel, but it's really good. <laughs> do you do book readings? I bet you're great at a book reading. Uh, I don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> Although the, the third racetrack in, in Washington State, uh, they indicated a willingness to host a book signing there. Unfortunately, it came out like the week before the season ended. So I'm going to try to work with them next spring and do a book signing at the track there because one of the one of my editors uh, likened it to a Dick Francis type book. So I, hopefully, a lot of people buy it there. And I've got uh, a website uh, contacting people directly by email and by text, people I know. And I'm told that there's a chance I can go to Costco, my local Costco, and get it sold there. I'm trying to get on Goodreads. I have uh, one woman that read it uh, that uh, fortunately loved it. it has 17,000 social media followers. I don't know what platform it is. She really liked it. She promised she's going to post it. So the marketing part, I'm not skillful at. I know I can sell because I love the book and, and it's a good story. And I'm, I'm anxious to get the marketing done because I've, I want to write two more. It's going to have a, it'll be a trilogy. Similar, a lot of the same characters will be in the next two. And I'll move from the civil arena to criminal. Is it a continuation of this story? Yes, yes. Arnie Adams is the main uh, character that's the attorney for Elmer, and he's going to get involved in a couple of murder cases, uh, defending murders. And uh, he's going to, and he'll have a relationship with a couple of the characters in Stark Justice. He's kind of planted the seeds of those relationships in Stark Justice, and they're, they're going to blossom in the next book. Uh, and you'll get an inside view of the criminal justice system as opposed to civil justice system in this one. And then the third book, the third book, I'll, I'll focus on the judicial system, and that'll be the trilogy. Why the title Stark Justice? Well, you know, when I first wrote that chapter and a half way back when I was a lawyer, I called it the long shot because he was a thoroughbred, you know, jockey and, and it was a centerline case. So it was a long shot whether he'd win. And I thought double entendre. And then Dick Francis came out with a book called long shot. Oh, and I thought, okay. We got to bag that one. And I just came up with uh start justice. I decided to name my character Elmer Stark. And I thought, uh, because of the nature of what I write, in the book, it, it, I still have the double entendre uh, with, with what happens throughout the book. So, Well, listen, I'm, I'm looking forward to talking to you on the next book. I, I am too. I mean, I, this is, I never imagined I would be doing this. Uh, heck, I didn't imagine I'd even be a judge uh, back when I was in college, but uh, it, it just God has kind of put me here and it's given me an opportunity to not only entertain people, uh, but educate them too. 
and and uh, that that's kind of my goal with these books to make it a fun ride and and I, I try to make it rapid fire. I, I pattern it after James Patterson. My chapters are very short, so you just keep going, going. And I have a lot of information that isn't uh, commonly known by the public, so that I educate them that way. I give them the details of uh, various uh, things from the surgeries to uh, investigating uh, almost fatal car wrecks and, and uh, how to prep cases from the defense side and the plaintiff side and all that stuff. So it, it's, it's fun. And, and I can't wait to do the same for the criminal uh, cases. I was very fortunate as a judge, even though I'm in a, a rural area, uh, I had major, major cases uh, that were on my calendar. I, in fact, OJ Simpson's media team after his murder trial, were in, they were in my courtroom for about two and a half weeks covering a trial I had. Wow, um, and so it's amazing that the kinds of huge cases that I had in such a rural area. But the judges in Seattle didn't have the stuff I had here in Wenatchee. It's it's amazing. So I've got lots to look right about. Right, just got to change the names, you yeah. know, and and make make the facts work even better than real life. So. <laughs> All right, Chip. I really enjoyed talking to you. Well, it's nice talking to you. You have a great day. You too. Bye bye. Juliana Newland spent decades as a manager in a variety of industries, and what her co-workers didn't know was she was taking notes, and those notes became her book, All Up in Your Business, Managing Your Business Crap. What a title. Where'd you gather all this intel? I worked at Eli Lilly and Company and Government Relations for about 24 years, and then I retired, and then I decided I want to go back to work, so I went back with a company called MISO, M-I-S-O, which is... Uh, in the electricity arena, and then I retired. I did internal communications for that last job. So this is where you made all of these observations for your book? Yes, yes, from, actually from all of my jobs. I've worked in state government, I worked for a trade association, I worked for two nonprofits, and then for Lilly, which is a Fortune 500 company. And you were always a writer, Yes. All of my jobs just entail a lot of writing, writing of newsletters or internal communications, speeches, legislation, talking points. I started writing for fun probably in high school. I was a sports writer for my high school newspaper. And then when I was in college, I was the editor-in-chief for two years for my university newspaper. So one day you woke up and said, hey, I'm going to I'm gonna publish a book. I mean, how did that happen? Well, what happened was I had been collecting all these little anecdotes over the years. And after I retired, I thought, well, now I have the time and the interest to write a book if I could just discipline myself to take the time to do it. And I did. It took me about six months because uh, going back and doing my own editing and sharpening the writing a little bit. And then I uh, had hired Fulton Books to be my publisher. And um, from there, it took about a year for the their process, and then it hit the market. Tell me some of your observations. One, which I found to be the case, especially in the earlier years of my career, was how difficult it was for women to succeed in the workplace, to get promoted especially, to be recognized by male 
management so that they could lead a project and then use that as a stepping stool for promotion to another position or promotion within that line. So that was something that I saw happen a lot and it was very frustrating and eventually um, things have changed over time. It's still, it, there still is a good old boys club that exists at the workplace, I think, but it's not necessarily as, certainly not as bad as it was when I started out in the 80s when I was working. Um, I'm the narrator and I, I'm talking about, there's 40 some odd different topics and I um, lay them out and I talk about the topic and then it's written tongue-in-cheek and it's somewhat smart-alecky and I also offer good advice to especially younger employees about how they can overcome some of these obstacles and work together and find out that there really are other people that have the same concerns that they do at work and that they should just do some peer-to-peer work and that would help. There also is a character in the book which is my muse and she is a two foot tall uh, nymph like character who helps me with my creative writing now this is uh kind of weird how it how she comes into the book but she's interspersed throughout the book she and i have a lot of dialogue and usually it's contentious because she is very mercurial she's supposed to help me with my writing but she typically just sits around in my master closet she wears gaucho pants and a tube top and she, and she, she, she's up on the fashion trends. She's classy would be the best way to describe her. But she and I have a lot of dialogue and I get frustrated because she's supposed to help me write and she's never there when I need her. So that's part of the book as well. And then I, another part of the book is I asked um, two bartender friends of mine who work at a restaurant in Indianapolis to create original craft cocktail recipes and so they each did four or five and i gave them business names like networking thinking outside the box and (laughs) names like that and they're really good drinks that uh, i haven't really found anywhere else but they created them so those are included in the book with the notion that after a hard day's work you probably would like to come home and make yourself one of these great drinks so that's um another another piece that's woven in the pieces that are woven in the book another thing is asking for a pay rate i find that women are somewhat hesitant to ask for a pay raise because i don't i don't know if it's because of that atmosphere that kept them thinking well maybe i'm not good enough because i haven't been promoted so I don't deserve a pay raise, but I encourage women in there to ask for a pay raise, document the good work you've done, get some other managers to send a note to your management team to let them know of the good work you've done. So, and it seems like a lot of what I write about is, I don't want to say conflict, but the rub between men and women. When I was reading the description of your book, I got the impression that there was a lot of fun stuff, a lot of funny stuff in there too. There is, there is, because I write it very tight and cheap. I put little lines in, for instance, when you come to an interview, be sure to remember your name Things like that, just smart out gills. You know, that remember, remember your name, remember the name of the company you're, you're interviewing with. Wear an open weave top 
things like that. An open weave top? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Expose the girls? Yeah, that's right. Give them you something give them to look some at. Air. Give them some air. Give them some air. They got to breathe, right? That's right. I can't believe, I feel like we're living in the 50s again. I thought the workforce was further along in the 80s and the 90s, but it really wasn't. No, no, it wasn't. I guess it depended on the industry. I think it is very industry specific. And if you had women leaders who could pull other women up, that helped a lot too. Or if you had men who had their eyes more open and were more open-minded and took the extra effort to help raise up women. Do you think it's any better now? Yes. I noticed the change over my 30 years. It is much better now. Yeah. Any ideas for promoting your book? Yes. As a matter of fact, I'm doing a lot of central Indiana, Indianapolis coffee shops, bookstores, doing reading, selling the book, uh, scheduling those for the month of December. And I also am doing podcasts, which haven't started yet for next year. And my publisher, as you know, is doing some uh, work for me with video trailer and Facebook page and some other social media. And I'm getting a uh, audiobook version of my book done. Wow, you're really motivated. <laughs> Have to be. The book doesn't sell itself. I know, but some people wish it would. Yeah. So when you go to these coffee shops, for instance, do you get a lot of questions? It de really depends on the environment and how much I talk or if I just sit there and sign and sell books. Um, I get questions on what motivated me to do it. What are some of the funny points in my book? Why is Why is my book good to read? Things like that. Are you going to keep writing? You know, I don't know. It was such a process. Very frustrating in some ways. Depends on if something strikes me that I want to write about. Right now, I don't have anything in mind, per se, but something may come along. I've been thinking about maybe developing the muse a little more and have a second book about her and bring her to life uh, for people. But I don't know that I'll write another book about the business environment. Well, All Up in Your Business, Managing Your Business Crap definitely gets attention, that title, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Where did that come from? All Up in Your Business. Me. It, just, yeah. it was what I thought of. Yeah. I use that word business a lot when I say business. So Business. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Juliana, thanks so much for taking time out to talk to me. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. You have a great day. Thank you. Rhonda Leethorpe worked mostly with elementary school children with special needs for over 30 years, and she knew something was missing. So around 2000, she started her book, The Integrating Social, Emotional, and Academic Skills. Rhonda, what was missing? I was observing my students and they weren't meeting with success. And one day on my way home, I just felt like a spirit of compassion came on me. And I thought, what is it? What is it that they need? And then the topics started rolling out of my heart until I did about 166 of them. Rolling out of your art? Yes. Yes, my spirit. You know, it's social emotional. That's one of the missing components, you know, in the education system. We don't address being respectful, showing tolerance, keeping a focus, 
displaying leadership skills. So if none of that is taught in the home or the community or even a church setting, where's it being taught? So really, we the kids come to school every day with their behaviors, their attitudes, and their thought process. And that's what we deal with. It can't be easy to teach these things. It's very easy to teach them with my book. <laughs> I developed concrete lessons about abstract ideas. Like I told one of my students one day, you know, maybe it'd be a good idea if you were a little more dedicated. And they looked at me with the strangest look like, what was I even talking about? So I did a lesson on dedication. So everything that kept my students from being successful, I put it in the positive. And then I did them as a bell starter. So when they came into my room, they would see my little mantra message. We would do a choral reading and we would just address that topic for the rest of that period while I was teaching social studies. For example, thanks for being dedicated to complete your lesson. Thanks for being dedicated, for keeping a focus. So I just used that abstract idea and used it for the rest of the period. And really what it is, is a behavior management in a school-wide discipline program. Young adolescents are young adolescents. Whether it's rural, it's urban, it's poverty, it's rich, you know, if they're not being taught, in my opinion and with my experience about being respectful or being tolerant of other people, ethnicity or using listening skills, you know, they're just not going to be successful. But the students that I predominantly worked with were African-American and the Hispanic. And the majority of them were special needs. They were emotionally handicapped, very easily angered, you know. So that's where my book came from. Were were there any situations that were uncomfortable for you? Well, number one, I think the most difficulty was when they walked into the classroom, you know, maybe from the bus or maybe from another classroom or maybe from home. They came in with a certain thought, attitude, or a behavior, and either that interfered with their learning or it enhanced it. And predominantly for most of them, it was was not in their favor. They had very destructive thought processes. They had negative attitudes, continuous inappropriate behaviors. So I took everything that they did and put it in a positive and wrote and wrote lessons about it. So I told one of my students, you know, it'd be a little bit helpful if you were a little more dedicated and they didn't even have even a concept of what did that mean. My next one that I have, I will be willing to learn. <laughs> willing to learn. Yeah. Another one, I will solve my own problems. I will contribute to the learning environment. How do you get a kid to the point where they get what you're talking about? Because he's coming in going, um, my parents were up fighting all night. My dad left, didn't come back. Uh, There was gunfire in the neighborhood. You know what I mean? I do. How do you get them to focus? Well, because number one, these lessons, for whatever reason, they were very, very uh, interested in them. 
They all participated in them. They were very inspired by them. I had them on the screen on my smart board. So when they first came in as a bell starter, you know, forget world history that I was teaching. I wanted to make sure that they had a, like a valued thought. So I read my message, a very brief message about, I will contribute to the learning environment. And I did a choral reading with them. So I would read a sentence, they would read it after me. And then for the rest of the period, I would just simply thank them. Thank you, Jamal, for contributing to our learning environment. Because at one point in my teaching career, to be very blunt, it seems like I went from an educator to a dictator. You know, you need to turn around, you need to open your notebook, you need to stop talking, you know, constantly addressing behaviors that interfered with their learning and the learning of others. Did you get any pushback at all, Rhonda? I wouldn't say a pushback because it was my behavior management. I mean, how do you manage 30 students in a classroom, right? Really? That's the problem. I don't know. Well, yeah. Hello. I mean, that's part of our our job as an educator is to make sure that we have behavior management skills. And I'm thinking to myself, how are you going to manage students? I would rather teach them a concept. So they really took to these lessons, all of them, right away. Like about the third day, they started clapping. One of them stood on the desk and said, yay, you know, it's, it was incredible, um, the response that they had, because you never know how students are going to respond, you know, to a lesson that you present. Well, I mean, you were also giving them positive feedback, which I'm sure they don't get much of. I was definitely kept addressing that one topic throughout the period. Yes, I did. Yes, I I don't know how many other educators do this, but I have to tell you, I I interview a lot of teachers who come up with interesting concepts, interesting ways of dealing with kids in many different kinds of circumstances. And I just wish there was a universal pot that they could put this information into so that they could retrieve it. You know, like a teacher in New York could retrieve this book. Teachers have a calling. You, You feel compelled. You feel that it is your calling to teach children, to help them learn to become contributing members of our society. And that's why you write a book like this. Truth. Now, how do you get it to other teachers? Well, number one, that's why I went with page publishing. I had the my hard drive in the desk for probably two or three years, and my spirit was never settled because I don't believe that I wrote it just for me and for my students. And there were other colleagues on my school campus that got wind of this, and they were also using it, and they were giving me such positive feedback from the results that they were getting. Right. Um, so that's why I made it available through page publishing because I wouldn't have been able to do, I'm not a publisher, I'm not a marketer, I'm just a, a teacher, an educator, a writer, a speaker. So I would love to have these, oh my God, South Chicago, 
L.A., Detroit, yes. Can you go into other school districts where you are and talk about this? Well, number one, I've done, let me see, maybe it was maybe a decade ago. I did a lot of teacher workshops at the national level. I went to Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, South Carolina, Canada. You know, do I have that interest? Is that in me again? To be quite frank, I don't know if it is. Oh. I, my, my final motive was to make it available, and it is in a book form now. Okay. And anybody can get it on, you know, the websites that Page Publishing is providing for me and their marketing. Rhonda, you've done a wonderful thing. Well, thank you kindly. My students, even after a couple of years, they would see me in the hallway. Miss Thorpe, Miss Thorpe, I'm still being dedicated. So it stayed with them. Yeah. It's yes. That's awesome. Yes. They called me Thorpe because they were Hispanic, but it's Thorpe. But they would call you Thorpe? Yeah, I let them. Yes, I was okay with that. Do you miss teaching? <laughs> um, 34 years of it. It's still in my heart. I mean, it's it. I came with it. It's my heart and my soul. But now that I'm 70 and already did the deal, you know, I'm kind of on a different path in my life's journey at this point. But would I feel comfortable going in a classroom, introducing? Absolutely, I would. But you know, I think I kind of, I did my time. <laughs> well, thanks so much for spending some time with me today. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Appreciate your phone call and your time and whatever the universe has in store is going to happen. You got it. Thanks, Rhonda. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Next time you think you don't have enough time to write a book, think about A.A. Higgins, Father of three, works in the hospitality industry at two Atlanta hotels, sells life insurance, and he's a delivery driver working seven days a week. He always had a passion for writing and then inspiration struck. And now he can add published author to his list of accomplishments with The Egyptian Princess and the Lost Treasure. Whew. You had a little push there, didn't you? Uh, I was about, about 15. I would write these short stories and then um, not only the short stories, my own personal short stories. I also, you know, my assignments, my writing assignments at school. But some of my teachers, I would let some of my teachers read my short stories and and they all would tell me how good I was at writing and that I should. And I always told them that I had a passion for storytelling. But then after I graduated high school and went to college, I had my first son. And that's when I took a pause from writing. And then it wasn't until during the pandemic that I decided to, to pick it back up where I left off. I had nothing but time on my hands at that point. And so, I, but I contemplated for like a year or so on actually what to write. You know, I was getting a lot of ideas on what to write. A lot of friends were telling me to, to write a tell-all story about my life because I, I lived an exciting life, in my opinion. Okay. <laughs> but I was like, I was like, no, nah, that's not what I want to do. Because, you know, I, I, like, I like creating stories and, and using my imagination. And, and so one day I was watching my favorite TV show, playing with my daughter. And that's when it hit. That's when it clicked. I should do a children's book for my daughter. And then that's when I took, it took me probably about 
six months to write it because I was procrastinating for the most part. And because, you know, life was still happening. But after that, I kind of I kind of locked in for about two weeks and just got it done. And then that's when I reached out to page publishing and, and it went from there. That's that's great. I mean, seriously, six months is not long to write a book. Yeah, I, I, in my, I felt like it was because I felt like I could have done it a lot quicker. So the story, the story is about a, a, a young princess um, in, in ancient Egypt who likes to journey through different things. And and her father would always read her this story about about this lost treasure along the Nile River that was lost along the Nile River. And something clicked to her that it, that she believed that it was that the story was actually true. And so there was a map that came with the book of the story. And so she takes the map and then she embarks on this journey with her with her trusty sidekick, which is a bald eagle and her companion. And they journey through the desert searching for the treasure, which can only be found at a certain period of time where you you actually have to find the fairy because the fairy is the guardian of the treasure. So you have to ferry, find the ferry in order to find the, to locate the treasure. They go through this journey where they go through the desert and face some adversities because her goal was to find the treasure and take it back to the townspeople because her father is the king of the, of the town. She wanted to give back to the townspeople and luckily she goes through that adversity and over, overcomes her fears. And What kind of adversity? What kind of fear? Just being in the desert alone, um, the frigid temperatures at night in the desert, the heat, sandstorms. Once they find the ferry, they they go through these different puzzles in order to get to the actual treasure. And it's a snake pit and and like this puzzle to step on certain pieces in order to make it to the other side to to get to the actual treasure. It's you know what it reminds me of Indiana Jones. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah, it's it's something like yeah, it's something along the lines of Indiana Jones. But I love that your hero is a is a little girl. Yeah, yeah, my children are are, are my inspiration for everything that I do, and then I, I pick the storyline where I can could actually turn it into like a series of different adventures, you know, with her and her eagle and her best friend also. But I don't talk much about our best friend in the story. That's for the next book. You're you're already on to the to the next book. I'm actually on I'm actually on my third book. So my second book that I wrote is actually in memory of my father, because I just lost my father this past April. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. Um, so the second book that I wrote, I wrote in memory of him because he didn't have the opportunity to meet all of his grandchildren, because I'm originally I'm originally from Memphis, so. So he didn't he didn't have the pleasure of meeting all his grandchildren before he passed away. Well, how old are your kids? Uh, twelve, seven, and two. What do they think of the book? My twelve year old and my seven year old they loved it, and they were actually I think they were the most proud of me for writing it. Aww. And then my daughter loved it because the image of the the image of the girl in the book was from my daughter. Are you able to go into their schools and read the book? Yes. 
when the book came out a couple months ago, one of my sons goes to the middle school that I used to go to. So I was able to connect with some old teachers that, that were there. And that came about and I read it. I read it when I went back home. Last time I went back home. Well, when your middle school teachers saw that you wrote a book, what, they must have been excited. Oh, they were extremely excited. They were like, my my old English teacher told me like she 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 figured that that was the direction I would end up going in. So they liked it. Yes, um, I I just re- it was just recently in a book fair in in Germany in Frankfurt, Germany. Did you get any anything out of that? Yeah, I actually I actually have an interview from from an award winning blogger who wants to interview me also, and he has he has a, a huge following also which could bring a lot of good traction to the book also. So that's great. It sounds like you're getting some traction here. I am. I am. Um, in a couple of weeks, they should be taking care of all my social, my authors, my social media platforms and all of that. And then once all that comes into play, then I can promote it a lot more. Instagram, Facebook, all that. Yes, ma'am. So you're, you're having a pretty good experience then, I guess. I am. I really, I really am. I really am. I, I don't know. I think it's, it's something that I want to... I want to be able to have time to do more of, to produce a lot more. So I'm ha- I'm hoping that this book takes off very well, in order to give me time to take to take a step back from a couple jobs and be able to focus more more on writing. And I'm hoping one day I can get to the point where I can write me a solid a solid novel. Well, I hope so too, A. A. Higgins. It was very nice talking to you. Uh, It's been a pleasure talking to you as well. Thank you. You have a blessed one. Bye-bye. For Tammy Pickert, her writing journey began with a dream. And now she's published a book entitled The Magical Falls. Well, actually, quite a few books came to me in a dream. I have like a whole series in my head. They just all came to me. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to write it. And then I kind of showed it around to a couple of people. And they're like, okay, that's pretty cute. I like it. So you never kept a journal? You don't know anything about writing? Do you like to read? I love to read. Yeah, I read a lot, but I've never... Read. What do you read? Usually sci-fi, like the Harry Potter series, and uh, I do a lot of like the vampire type. But like that came to me in a dream. It's so bizarre. Five years ago, we found my dad's birth family, and that's where the name Pickert came from. That's my dad's actual birth name. And we've gotten really close with them and stuff, and I don't know, after hanging out with them and stuff, all of a sudden, boof, it like popped into my head. I think it might be my grandmother from the other, you know, the unworldly area. (laughs) Somebody may be speaking to you through otherworldly means. Yeah. The book is about a bully and trying to make people understand that bullies also have feelings and there might be a reason they're bullying. And then also my, uh, the little girl, the other girl that's being bullied in the book has magic touches the bully's hand and sends her some love so that she no longer bullies. Um, There is Addie, and she is actually my niece. She's 11 years old. She has Down syndrome. So the book is basically based around her, and that's kind of what I wanted to do with all the books is have all my nieces and nephews be the main characters. So she starts off, and then this little girl named Noella comes in and is new in school. And she just kind of is quiet at first. And then she realizes that Addie is very popular. Everybody's high-fiving her in the hallways and showing her lots of attention and everything. 
So then she starts kind of bullying her by, you know, like grabbing her pencil off her, her desk or whatever. And uh, Addie ends up coming back to or to hang out with me with her mom, Zia. And we're all talking. And I said, why don't you see if you can ask her what's wrong with her? And so she goes to school the next day and does that. And Noella doesn't react very well and pushes her on the ground. So then the, the school counselor was there and she took them into her room and they had to kind of go through talking and stuff. And eventually Noella opened up about how, you know, her home life is not so good. They lost, she lost her father a year ago and that she is, you know, alone a lot because her mom now has to work a full-time job and doesn't get home till late and she's very lonely. And so they all start crying a little bit and then, that's when Addie decides to touch her hand, or Addie starts with her tear, she starts kind of glowing hearts, and then eventually she touches Noella's hand, and then they both start glowing hearts, and next thing you know, at Noella's healed, and then they talk about how the Magical Falls is a place where you can get powers for people who are going to do good for the world. So they do have powers. They are kind of supernatural. Addie is yes. supernatural. Addie is, yes. Did she know that she had this power before? She did. She found it out a little bit beforehand. So then after after they kind of go through a little bit, then she says, what else can you do? And Addie just kind of puts her hands up and makes this big heart around herself and makes a little heart band dance. <laughs> <laughs> now you envision a whole series with Addie? With Addie and all of my other nieces and nephews, yes. At the end of the book, is there anything indicating that there might be something else coming? Yes, because I kind of put it that, you know, we should have my mom take you to the falls and, you know, see the falls. So I think that's kind of like a little opening that that way another one could be coming where they actually go see the falls, which is the way the second one starts. Have you already started the second one? I already finished it, yeah. Like I said, they're all in my head. Yeah, they're they're literally in my head. <laughs> How many we got coming here? I'm hoping about 10. That's a lot of books. It is a lot of books. Who is reading these books? It's supposed to be for like kids age 6 to 10-ish. My nieces and nephews are all in their 30s. Two of them that work at elementary schools, so they're supposed to be taking it into their principals and seeing if they can kind of do that for bullying month, anti-bullying month. So there's an anti-bullying month coming up. And would you actually go in and read the books to them? I would if they let me. Well, okay. Yeah. That's something to look forward to. Yes, definitely. Has your family read the book, your nieces and nephews? and Yeah, all the parents have gotten it and read it to them, especially Addie. She really liked it, but she, she has Down syndrome, so she kind of understands but doesn't understand. Yeah. But her little brother, who's seven six or seven he totally understands and is excited as can be listen thanks so much for uh taking the time to talk to me you're very welcome we hope you enjoyed this edition of the reader house author roundtable where authors from all walks of life come together to discuss the trials tribulations and triumphs of publishing their books i'm alice stockton rossini we hope to see you back here every saturday night at eight o'clock or listen to our podcast anytime on spotify apple Podcasts, stitcher TuneIn, and PodServe just to name a few. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where independent new authors come first.